Hello and welcome to the American Civil War, Episode 4, The American System, Industrial Growth of the United States. No country in history ever grew as far or as fast as the United States. In 1776, the nascent United States was a notable, but not especially powerful, collection of colonies on the periphery of European and world affairs, with little economy outside of agricultural products or their immediate derivatives such as liquor, cider, and rope. By the time of the Civil War, it was the most populous Western nation except for France, and growing far more rapidly, larger than Russia, west of the Ural Mountains, competing at the leading edge of technological and industrial development with Britain, and capable of fielding armies nearly on the scale of Europe combined during the Napoleonic Wars. This growth occurred despite a low-level conflict with France during the French Revolution, the War of 1812 with Britain, and another substantial conflict with Mexico, plus numerous frontier wars with the American Indian or Native American peoples following the revolution itself. Nothing, it seemed, could halt the rampant American expansion except the Pacific Ocean. This growth could easily be seen in a list of numbers ticking off the ways and the extent that growth occurred. Yet that repetition also obscures as much as it illuminates. America did not simply grow in size or wealth in this period, although it did both, and expansion and intensification simultaneously. The nation also underwent the Industrial Revolution, starting from almost nothing, partly because the policy of Britain in the pre-revolutionary days was to keep industry within England and very definitely out of the colonies. So while we have seen how steam power was used for travel, we haven't yet explored the struggle of American manufacturers to enter and compete in the global economy, and change that economy as a consequence. This is not a complete history of the Industrial Revolution in the United States, mostly because that is simply too huge a topic for deep discussion here. We could go into the intricacies of numerous major developments individually, the sprouting of heavy industry, and the growth of factory towns on formerly green fields. But for the sake of time limits alone, we'll have to focus down to the most significant events and changes for the long-term patterns relevant to our topic today. Since it will become important later, we should take a moment to note that tariffs were hot political issues during this, these years. Now, tariffs, if you're not aware, are taxes on imported or sometimes exported goods. In the decades following the Great Depression, in the United States at least, tariff rates tend to remain politically obscure and argued over mostly by policy wonks, rather than being hot-button topics in congressional debate. Yet in the 19th century, the effect of tariffs were frequently immediate and obvious to manufacturers and customers alike. So there were significant ready-made factions immediately available to support either side of any tariff. The imposition of excise duties could make or break an industry, and these mostly funded the federal government as well. This meant that tariff rates, frequently fought over in the national legislature, at times swung considerably in value from year to year as first one faction, then another, managed to impose its will. Getting voters' support in Charleston or Philadelphia meant some considerable log-rolling to compromise with local economic interests. The United States, however, forbade itself any internal barriers to trade, which were at that time still extremely common throughout Europe. 
One of the major factors behind the growth of one particular, and particularly relevant, industry was industrial espionage. In the 18th century, perhaps the major factor behind British dominance in the global textile trade was that no one else knew how to make the machinery quite so well. During this era, textile manufacturing changed and improved in technology year after year, or decade after decade, and foreign nations were always years behind the British lead. Now Samuel Slater changed that with a remarkably simple plan, although it was a very long-running plan, as we'll see. Slater was born in England and learned the textile trade in the 1780s. By 1789, with the Revolutionary War over, Slater decided that was a good time to leave for better pastures. Specifically, he knew Americans wanted to develop their own textile industry, as did almost every European nation at the time, but were stymied by strict British laws regulating the export of machinery and technology. Her Majesty's government well understood the precise value of that technology and blocked the spread of textile machinery or any relevant documentation accordingly. So Mr. Samuel Slater simply memorized that technology. And when I say that he memorized it, I mean that he learned darn near everything about the textile trade needed to replicate it. Slater learned how and remembered how to build all the machines, how to run them, and additionally many production secrets such as how to select and use the raw fiber. Upon emigrating to the United States in 1789 at the tender age of 21, he began work for the early industrialist Robert Moses and started operations with the first water-powered spindle in America. Now, Samuel's brother John would eventually emigrate as well and add yet more technology to the pile, but by this time, Slater was already well on his way to becoming a very wealthy man. At the time of his death in 1835, he owned 12 mills and possessed assets of at least a million dollars, which placed him among the richest men in the United States. In the process, he also sowed the seeds for a vast industrial expansion in America. Now, he did very well in that booming business, as we've seen, and yet still, his mills were only 12 of over 200 active in the United States at the time of his passing. Slater was particularly important not just for building the textile industry, but also for developing the American factory system, which in turn would eventually be expanded and adopted around the world. Slater's particular implementation emphasized a strong group work system in a country that had known very little large-scale employment. In particular, Slater's Rhode Island system used as a model the pattern of family life he had known in England, though perhaps in an overly idealized form. He employed entire family units and created a tight-knit factory floor on his production line. This would be developed further in the Waltham-Lowell system. Now, Francis Lowell is another American manufacturer of considerable fame, but for our purposes, his most important innovation was to create a vertically integrated manufacturing design, the first in the Americas and a significant development in global economics. Lowell hired a large female-dominated labor force and organized their work precisely, additionally substituting tight social control for harsh punishments or family ties. In this system, the Lowell Mills recruited women, preferably young and unmarried, to live in special dormitories. These women, or even girls, received education and cash wages, making an attractive option for those who needed it. 
The system proved so successful that it expanded into the new community of Lowell, Massachusetts, which became one of the world's largest centers of cloth production. The Lowell Industrial Plant alone produced more cloth than the entire future Confederacy together, and not coincidentally, sold a large proportion of its stock south in the form of cheap clothing given to slaves. This brand of development would prove extremely important to the coming Civil War for several reasons. Primarily, it gave the northern states a huge manufacturing lead, which meant that not only did they have a stronger economy, but that economy could produce ever more with far fewer people, in conditions which permitted quick training and replacement of the workforce. In essence, the factory system Lowell developed allowed people to be viewed as a generic labor supply, quickly trained in specific tasks, and integrated in the, into the production of materials. Now, in theory, this might mean that workers received low pay, but all the advantages of these factories meant that wages were relatively attractive, at least compared to the alternatives available. Especially for single women that we've seen, the work was tough, but probably far less demanding than farm life, and with very fair pay by the standards of that time. Despite the strict scheduling and long hours, the opportunity for cash income and even education looked very attractive. In any case, both workers and management assumed that the employees would move on after a few years. This does not mean that there was no abuse or exploitation, but nearly that the workers themselves broadly considered factory work an acceptable, though not always desirable, alternative. The expansion of the factory system into a variety of industries would result in some social unrest as the old apprenticeship model began to break down. Yet this process was stymied in part because of the open and growing frontier, which meant broad opportunities for the talented and ambitious. The ever-growing republic was therefore able to overcome, to a large degree, internal class conflict by changing the nature of skilled labor instead of undercutting it. Indeed, the United States was able to repeatedly absorb craftsmen pushed out of Europe. American factories often needed skilled laborers as machinists, and if not, there was always a place for metal workers, tailors, and more in the growing cities. If you couldn't find work in one place, you'd more than likely be able to find something in one of several rapidly growing cities, or in a number of developing frontier communities, or anywhere in between. Again, this does not mean that workplaces went forward entirely without dissatisfaction, just that economic diversity meant that wage labor wasn't nearly so universal as today, and that more social escape valves existed. That being said, Whigs, and to an even greater degree Republicans, celebrated and encouraged harmony between labor and capital, aided in great part by the comparative closeness of the two. Investors and owners in the 19th century were more likely to be former workers themselves and often had a keen ear for their own factory floors. Strikes did happen, and often succeeded, in part because the managers and owners were very deeply involved in personally addressing issues like wages. The combination of these factors meant that industry could well unjustly exploit their workforces, but just as often saw them as partners, because even as the apprenticeship model was fading, the ideal remained. Abraham Lincoln himself put it thusly, The prudent, penniless beginner in the world labors for wages a while, saves a surplus with which to buy tools or land for himself, then labors on his own account another while, and at length hires another beginner to help him. This, say its advocates, is free labor. 
Although this may have been the ideal instead of always the reality, it was hardly a fiction. Abraham Lincoln himself achieved just such a rise in status, and he was far from abnormal in accomplishing that, although his degree of success remains impressive to this day. And equally, the ability of those workers to simply leave made it relatively difficult to underpay or mistreat them over the long haul. While the northern factory system was one large step on the long road to a modern economy, well to the south a similar shift was being undertaken that may even had larger consequences. American craftsmen were bringing an old idea to fruition, with profound effects on the global military and industrial spheres. Now, there are a couple candidates for the specific developer of the system, so I can't entirely give you a specific name. But accounts agree that the system began development at the Armory Harpers Ferry, most likely between 1815 and 1822. Now, the confusion in the origins occurs because it was an ongoing project, and one which required the cooperation of skilled arms makers, industrialists, and military officers. Now, the concept at its heart was simple. The parts of any given machine, in this case firearms, would be standardized and interchangeable so that any identical part could easily be substituted. Today, this concept of interchangeable parts is completely embedded in the world's industrial base. But at the time, it represented an extremely difficult challenge. Now, the idea is easy, but implementing it was in reality incredibly difficult. Most machinery of the day was loose-fitting at best, and parts most often had to be hand-finished to work at all. Now, centralized or armories still, and in fact had for a long time, ordered parts and then carefully checked the measurements against the stock value. But they still need, might need to try several pieces when assembling a finished gun or making repairs, and they need to shave down wooden stocks or twist a brass fitting here to match. In the case of just one model of musket, that meant something like 80 parts had to all fit together, no mean feat. Now, it was no accident that the system came about in an armory, nor that it was first applied to armaments and even specifically to muskets. Previous generations of arms makers, of course, had the same notion, but could never successfully apply it given the prevalence of hand tooling. Even the molding or casting, which could be done with machinery, simply was not precise enough for the task. Yet in time of war, soldiers need equipment, and especially weaponry, that can be quickly and easily repaired out in the field. Thus, both the French and British navies attempted to implement a system of interchangeable parts themselves, but had difficulties actually achieving it in reality. It is perhaps suitable that the United States would be the first to succeed in implementing such a development. The United States, despite its widespread agricultural base at the time, held an immense reservoir of technical talent. During the early years of the Republic, numerous tinkerers and inventors focused tightly on mechanical and industrial innovation, and those we've mentioned thus far in this series are only a small selection of such notables. Furthermore, a great spirit of optimism and faith in the future existed, one which gave the NASA United States the enthusiasm to push farther than anyone thought possible. Also, speaking as a proud American, we can be downright obnoxiously stubborn when we so choose. Now, in practice, the claims of the Harper's Armory at first aroused as much doubt and envy as amazement. But even the most skeptical cynics were soon won over by specific demonstrations of the system's value. Workers soon proved that they could disassemble and rebuild muskets out of more or less random parts, including a famous demonstration by our old friend Eli Whitney fighting back against accusations 
that he had cheated the public by failing to deliver a contract for arms. This was certainly not a meager achievement. For reference, some countries had difficulty matching this even as late as World War II. And although the first generation of American machine tools was never quite as flawless as advertised, every year brought further improvements. By the time of the Civil War, the system had been well-developed and implemented almost universally in arms manufacturing, at least in theory. This system of interchangeable parts became known as the American System of, Inter of Manufacturers. It spread around the world so thoroughly that it soon entirely lost its distinctively American character. Nonetheless, it was in the United States that the first system came to fruition and spread to a wide array of industrial uses, and the United States remains a contender in machine tooling even now. Other major inventions could be mentioned, and each has a story to tell, from the development of power sources to heavy industries such as coal mining and iron production. All of these ideas are important and worth telling. But precisely because there are so many elements, we will instead turn to one specific invention that would play a critical role in the events leading up to, and those which took place during, the Civil War. This invention would not increase the production of the economy, but rather accelerate and smooth that development. Plus, it's actually kind of a genuinely heartfelt story, so... Samuel Morse began his long and impressive career as a painter, and that is specifically what he wanted to be in life. He loved painting classic scenes, and complained from time to time about the necessity of redoing endless rounds of portraits to earn a living. Nonetheless, he earned himself a good wage doing so, as well as the respect and renown to be called in for portraits of many leading men of the age, including, by this time former president, John Adams, and Eli Whitney, among many others. He was somewhat stymied in his career, however, because his aggressive anti-Catholicism made him an unsuitable candidate for several important public commissions, which really ought to be counted as another achievement in a country not exactly known for its friendliness to Catholicism in this day. It was during one of his treks to paint a portrait of General Lafayette during the latter's triumphant return visit to America in the 1820s that Morse receives tragic news. His wife had suddenly died in his absence. Word of her illness reached him a mere day before news of her untimely passing. Morse, heartbroken but not broken in spirit, lost much of his love for painting, at least for a time. Yet he also began to explore the idea of long-distance communication, precisely because the available options had failed him. Now, the French system of visual telegraphy worked, but it was slow and complicated, so instead he worked on a new idea of the electric telegraph. He may have guessed that he succeeded, both because I am talking to you about this right now, and also based on the fact that people today still use Morse code. In one of the strangest examples of how America made a splash on the world stage, in fact, not one but two separate American inventors independently came up with practical telegraph technology within a year of each other. However, only Morse patented his device and developed the necessary commercial applications. On May 24, 1844, he sent the message, What hath God wrought? across the wires from Washington, D.C. to Baltimore, Maryland. Within five years, multiple competing lines and telegraph designs spread out across the country, connecting most major cities with a spider web of communication, which even reached San Francisco by 1861. Yet even if finished by an American painter, the technology would soon be deployed to carry news across the country, and even across many countries. This held a particular importance before and during the Civil War, as we will see. 
speeding up communication, as it turns out, holds a number of dangers and possibilities never imagined by its inventors, not the least of which was the spread of rumors and confusion. Nonetheless, the telegram created an unprecedented situation. For the first time in world history, messages could be reliably carried faster than physical movement itself, and much more easily and cheaply at that. Businessmen now casually communicated with distant markets and factories daily, while personal messages might carry warm wishes or family news to far-flung relatives and friends. Among the huge changes that resulted from this in the years just before the Civil War was the emergence of the modern news service, sharing information within hours over the wires. The modern wire services emerged directly from the use of the telegraph, with the formation of the still-ongoing Associated Press occurring all the way back in 1846. Many of the wild exploits of the Civil War era press came about in this environment, where we see the birth of war correspondence in the modern sense. Likewise, the press that emerged from this world had a far more modern cast to them than before the railroad and telegraph bridged the division of states and regions in space and time. Next time, let's explore some of those divisions in as much detail as I can imagine in about 20 minutes. Until then, this has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for tuning in.